When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. This episode is a live event that we staged at the lovely Union Chapel in Islington in London. And it is Armando Yunucci, Jess Phillips and Jan Ravens on satire in an age of absurdity. Amanda Yunichi is perhaps best known for directing the film The Death of Stalin and also creating the TV series Veep and The Thick of It. And he appeared in conversation with Jess Phillips, the MP, and Jan Ravens, the satirist and impressionist from Dead Ringers, in conversation about satire in today's age of fake news and alternative facts when politicians often lie so blatantly and get away with it. Is satire still relevant in today's age? The conversation was chaired by Samira Ahmed of the BBC, and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode. If you do, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts because it helps others to find the show and it lets us know what you think. For those of our listeners who are in London, we want to flag up an event that we're staging. On Tuesday, the 17th of March, we have Jim Al-Khalili. Jim Al-Khalili is one of the nation's best-known broadcasters and physicists. And we're staging an event with him titled The World According to Physics. And it's all about why physics matters, what can the study of physics, of energy, force, matter, and the behavior of matter through space and time, what can that teach us about the universe? And what can that teach us about the nature of reality itself? Jim will be appearing in conversation with another physicist, Helen Zersky. She's one of the UK's most popular science presenters. And they will be appearing in conversation at Church House in Westminster. Like I said, that'll be on Tuesday, the 17th of March. And we look forward to seeing you there. If you'd like to buy tickets, please do so on our website, intelligencesquared.com. Good evening, everyone. And I think we've picked a very good night for satire in an age of absurdity. In the last few days alone, we've seen President Trump's attack on the judiciary escalate, the suffering of people seeing their homes and livelihoods destroyed in all-too-familiar-looking flooding, 
a female TV presenter who was given hostile coverage in the tabloid press take her own life, and then we find said papers in the nation at large express huge sorrow, sympathy, and surprise, um, and the mental health issues around that. And a man with racist, eugenicist, and deeply misogynistic views hired and forced to quit. Um, and crucially, uh, number 10 saying nothing to criticise or distance themselves from his view. So an interesting time to be discussing whether we need satire. So I wanted to ask each of you, maybe Armando first, what's your favourite piece of satire? Tell us a bit about My it. My favourite piece? Well, what can be funnier than uh, Adolf Hitler? Uh, I, um, I still think... Charlie Chaplin's film, The Great Dictator, is, is one of my favourite things. I mean, not, not people know it, but I, I looked at it again before we were doing The Death of Stalin. This is a film that came out in 1941, so right in the heart of the, the Second World War, and it was a satire about Hitler. And he was, it was very, very funny, but at the same time, he didn't shy away from um, not just sending up his... Uh, oratory, but he but he, he didn't shy away from discussing the real issues, the, the Jew, Jewish ghettos, and, um, and and what was going on in 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 the Second World War at the time in in, in Germany, and uh, I just see that as um, t- for me it, it was quite inspiring, really, and quite controversial at the time. I think controversial well. at the time, but now you just think it, it's just, and, and I'd urge you to to dig it out and, and have a look at it because it is remarkably funny and yet moving at the same time. Thank you. Um, Jess? Well, if Armando wasn't here, I would say that the thick of it is, for me, the greatest satire that has ever been written. And when I can't... Pretend I'm dead. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'll make this speech when you're dead. In in a room like this. Um, Yes. From up there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because... So, so I would say the thick of it, when I can't sleep at night, which is quite common because I have a quite stressful life, I am soothed by the tone of Malcolm Tucker. <laughs> so, um, and, 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 I have, and, and I know, obviously, quite a lot of the people who were, you know, sort of, who were around in that era in politics, who, uh, and it is, you know, quite accurate. Um, but... I, what I would say, because I felt like I couldn't be just a total brown noser, uh, I had a real think about it, and I have to say I think that for somebody of my generation, um, when, when I was 16, Brass Eye came out, and the, specifically the episode that was Cake, It's a Made-Up Drug, <laughs> where they got people who I now sit in the House of Commons with to hold an enormous yellow tablet and say that their necks were going to be engulfed. Now, obviously, dr- don't do drugs, kids. But, um, but as somebody who was 16 at the time and quite sort of heavily involved in going out and uh, rave culture, that I really, really felt like an insider <laughs> knowing what the gag was all the way through to these people who just didn't get it. Um, and I think that that is really clever when you're reaching out to a specific audience and, and they're in on the joke. So really good satire. It isn't just about sending people up. It is about people feeling like they're in on it as well. And I really felt as a 16-year-old, watching it with like my parents, but I, I really felt like losers. <laughs> I should say, Peter Capaldi told me that people come up to him on the street and say, would you swear abusively at me? Yes. 
um, and wanting to record stuff for their partners. They say, could you, are we allowed to swear? They say, could you tell me to fuck off? And he just goes, fuck off! <laughs> <laughs> and they go, nice. <laughs> oh, Jan, what about for you? Well, um, I, I, you know, it, there's almost, you know, an, an embarrassment of riches, isn't there? There's too many to... Uh, but, but the one that I, I sort of... Uh, that I really sort of stands out in my mind, and I don't even know if I've actually seen it. I don't know if it's available to see, but I've read about it. And it's, um, it's when Peter Cook in Beyond the Fringe um, impersonated Macmillan. And uh, he did this sketch as Macmillan. And he did this, you know, he had this impression of Macmillan that was very sort of much in that sort of area. And, um, and one night, um, Macmillan came to see the show. He came to see Beyond the Fringe. And everybody was very nervous about this because this was like, you know, around 1960. There hadn't really been uh, impressions of politicians. There had been a very sort of a culture of deference. Everybody had been very polite about politicians. And this was one of the first occasions where a politician had been portrayed. And so everybody was very, very nervous. But Peter Cook, whose kind of attitude to satire was really to sort of make mischief as opposed to kind of bring down the government or anything, he just thought this was great, you know, tip-top. Uh, you know, I, 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 the, the whole idea of being naughty was, um, was, you know, really sort of up his street. So, so he's actually, actually added this bit onto the Macmillan monologue and it sort of went on much longer. And he added this bit on at the end where he said, you know, when I've nothing better to do, I like to go to my local theatre and watch a bunch of sappy, urgent, vibrant young satirists with a stupid great grin spread all over my silly old face. And, like, everybody backstage and everybody in the audience was kind of going, oh, my God, you know, this is really embarrassing. But Peter Cook just loved it because, you know, this was, this was like proper anarchy and he, that was what he... And, and I just think it was a sort of, like, a seminal moment because it sort of symbolises this whole thing of, of like, you know, the, 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 the start of the sort of 60s satire boom and, and politicians having the piss taken out of them as opposed to being kind of, you know, revered which was kind of an important moment. Well, in a sense, you've given us one possible definition of satire, and you've also given us a kind of significant date. So the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is how you define satire, and I'll take Amanda first. But if we look at the idea of the satire boom of the early 60s, which is often claimed as, you know, opening a new era, and then we might look forward to something like the impact of um, spitting image in the Mm. 80s. I wonder how it looks to you as Amanda, as someone who certainly grew up in the 70s and 80s and can remember... Um, yeah, it's one of those of weird words, satire, because it, it can mean so many different things and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be funny, actually. And, but also Britain's had this tradition going right back to Jonathan Swift and Addison and Steele in the 17th and 18th century, uh, the cartoons about royalty that were really... Gilray. Really um, cruel and, and, and vicious. Um, and that's how I grew up thinking what satire was. There was a sort of literary tradition to it. And, and, you know, I was a great fan. I've done David Copperfield. I was a great fan of Charles Dickens. And he's a satirist, really. You know, he's... he's, And and I think what he does... My definition of satire is really something that looks at how the country or how society operates. A big factor of that is politically and, and how the country is run. But I think it also involves, you know, how the every person is, is swept up by it, how it affects them. So it, 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 I, I've never seen it as just being political. And in terms of how it manifests itself in art forms, you gave the example of kind of historic cartoons. Yeah. How would you define satire in the forms it takes? 
well, of course, you know, you can, you can be a, a... Well, it just depends what the forms are that are available. You know, you can tweet satire now. Uh, not many people do. Some unintentionally. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, and, and it's, it's this thing. So it's this strange word that... Um, that is multimedia and, and multifaceted, really, um, which is just as well because we've got all evening to, to talk about it. So <laughs> we can take that. Um, but that's how I've seen it as something that is not afraid to, 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 to take a big canvas, to go on a big stage and, 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 and look at the whole scope of, of society. Jan, what's your definition? And does it have to be funny? Well, it doesn't have to, you know, in, in the broad definition, it doesn't have to be funny. Um, but I think it's better if it is. And, and, I think, uh, and, and I think it has more impact if it is. Mm. I, mean, so the, the, I mean, I remember on Spitting Image, there were some moments that were actually like that every, every breath you take thing that was actually really quite moving. And we'd actually even done songs on Dead Ringers that have been... Mm. Um, that have been sort of... I remember doing, you know, Paloma Faith going, only leave can hurt like this. Uh, and, and, and it was, you know, there was quite moving um, uh, elements of satire. But I think, you know, if you make people laugh, you, you've engaged them. And, and maybe you can make them laugh and then make them think. Or maybe you can make them laugh and make them think at the same time. But if you're trying to sort of... I mean, you know, people sort of say, you know, with satire, you should be pricking pomposity and exposing hypocrisy. And, and those, you know, those are part of it, I think. But I think also it's, it's you know, like Peter Cook, Peter Cook sort of did, it, it's to make mischief. It's to be, a, you know, it is to be the sort of the court jester, but not in a kind of ringing bells and being silly sort of way or wearing a daft hat. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's to... It's to is to give people a different view of things, really, mm. I think. It's a different perspective. And maybe to sort of say, you know, you know that thing that they're saying? Well, what if you look at it like this? It, you know, it, it's, it, isn't that absurd? And that, to me, is sort of what satire does. But it's disruptive, I think. Yeah. And can I ask, before I bring in Jess, mm. as well, are there limits to what it can do? I was watching um, Spitting Image at a pantomime episode um, back in, I guess it would have been the very late 80s, and they shot at Hackney Empire. And the whole opening skit was about Diana throwing herself down the stairs. And it was around the time the Andrew Morton book had come out, but mm. the divorce hadn't happened. And it, it really shocked me. Um, and I couldn't imagine something like that being done now. And I wondered whether you'd have you on whether there's a line on what's taste-wise, or should there be a line acceptable? I, uh, well, I, I think, obviously, I think that there is a line, but I think maybe the line has got too... Um, it's too, too far in one direction. People have become too sensitive because, you know, I think part of the point of satire is to cause offence because somebody's bound to be offended by it, you know, namely the person that you're satirising and, you know, mm. their supporters. I mean, I've done stuff about um, Diane Abbott and, mm. and actually they're the, thing that, they're the things that cause most sort of trouble because people, um, people take the view that I'm being racist and I take the view that I'm, you know, taking the piss out of Diane Abbott because she doesn't prepare properly for interviews. And I sort of think, you know, why can't you, you know, uh, you know get your figures right and speak, you know, speak, you know, on, on my behalf? And I'm a, you know, member of the Labour Party, put my hand up. And, um, and I kind of think, well, you know, that you're doing people a disservice by not being prepared for that. So I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you down for that, Mrs., not, you know, and, and I, I, I think that's legitimate. I mean, obviously it's not legitimate... To, to comment on her, you know, on the colour or the fact she's a woman, you know, that's not what I'm getting at. 
And Jess, what's your definition of satire and how do you view it? Well, I think if it's not funny, it is just cruel and it is just uh, often... Uh, personally, I think... I can't think of a good example of a good satire that isn't funny. Well, I mean, there were some things on Spitting Image, and if you look back... I mean, my view of Spitting Image as a kid who grew up in the 1980s is that that is what I thought politics was. Yes. It's funny yes. that um, yes. that is what I ended up doing. And I remember when I was first elected, I was in the first ever Parliamentary Labour Party meeting in, in a room not dissimilar to this. Um, and, like, Neil Kinnock was sat next to me, and I was just taking photos of him oh. for my dad. <laughs> because it was like being in a live episode of Spitting, Spitting Image. Image. <laughs> um, um, and, I mean, I, I think that... I, I, I don't mind... I, I don't think that the being cruel about people or, mm. or sending people up... If it's not funny, I don't like it because I like to be entertained. And people can say whatever they like about me, actually, as long as it's got a good gag attached to it, I will laugh, is essentially the truth. Like, you know, I don't know whether it's because I'm from Birmingham or not, but the way I show love to people is to mercilessly take the piss out of them. <laughs> um, and my dad always says, you can tell who I like because I'm awful to them. Um, so I, I think that good satire... Um, most of the time, people like me shouldn't take offence to it. I don't watch the sort of idiotic characters on the thick of it and, and think, oh, well, you know, this is what has led to people thinking that, you know, I deserve to die or that I'm useless and that I'm living on some sort of gravy train. Mm. I, I look at them and I think, oh, I know that chap. <laughs> there is a Ben Swain in every room in Westminster. Oh, yeah. I... Um... The very first episode of The Thick of It has, has them in the back of a car on the way to make an announcement, big, a big spending uh, commitment, and then Malcolm rings up and says, the Prime Minister's pulling it, you've got no money. Well, I've summoned the nation's press. We'll just come up with something. Um, and we were filming it, and, and we, we shot the scene, and we still had 10 minutes to go until we got to the next location. So I said, well, why don't you improvise just trying to come up with a policy in the back of a car? And so the <laughs> actors just improvised. Now, within five years, three of those policies had... <laughs> had become law. Um, Glenn, Glenn, everyone should have their own plastic bag so that we don't have to keep pay, paying for plastic bags. Um, I mean, that's a great policy. Great policy. <laughs> Hugh Abbott, uh, pet asbos, which came in quite soon afterwards. And Chris, pet, pet asbos. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, and... Um, Chris Addison came in with a national spare room database, which became the bedroom tag. So, <laughs> we, I mean, part of the reason for bringing Think of It to an End was when it became adopted by Parliament and Cameron started calling. He said, oh, this I, was Corbyn... something was just like in Just like an episode of The Think of It, and then Miliband, Ed Miliband, called George Osborne's budget the um, omni-shambles budget. And, so, and when it starts being... And that's what happens. Politicians do appropriate what starts off, it's like spitting image, what starts off as being actually uh, uncomfortable. When it becomes successful, politicians kind of like the idea that there is something out there that is mirroring their world. And you've got the example of politicians then wanting to buy their spitting image puppet yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yes. So, so you don't feel you could write another show like that now? I think it would have to be very, very different. And also, it's, um, 
You know, I think it'd be brilliant now. Oh, I mean, Dominic really? Cummings, it's a character waiting to happen, isn't I it? I just worry it would just be very, very depressing because... <laughs> because <laughs> cause I think of it was an exaggeration of what was going on, but I feel now... There's I, nowhere to go. I feel now <laughs> reality is an exaggeration, but I don't know of what. Yeah. You see what I mean? I think we're yeah. stuck in an exaggeration of something. Um, you know. Looking at America as well, I yes. mean, you know, you've worked... Um, well, shows there as well. The, we're watching it at a distance, but there does seem to be a level of horror now to the mm. scale of what's unfolding. How do you view the role of satire in America? Well, that's very different. I mean, when we started, we did Veep, and um, uh, I just go back to what I was saying. Actually, they we we got shown round the West Wing by uh, Obama's um, chief aide, a guy called Reggie Love, um, who walks around with a <laughs> big sticker saying "Love" on his. <laughs> um, but, but he would show us around the West Wing, but he would reference characters from the TV show, The West Wing. So he'd say, this is the Roosevelt Room, this is where CJ and George... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but you're... You're, the you're him. You're, <laughs> yeah. Can't you say this is where Barack Obama, yeah. the president, would yeah. meet Angela Merkel? And yeah. No, it's just this kind of strange, kind of the other side of the fence is much more interesting. Today, though, I don't know because, you know, satire or political comedy or political humour, it kind of relies on there being an agreed set of rules by which most people abide. And we call out those who stray from the rules. But if there are no rules, you know, if Donald Trump is literally saying, I can shoot a guy in the face in Fifth Avenue and I'd still get elected... um, then, but we still need to call that out, don't we? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We still, and, and, you know, we still need to... I mean, you know, it, it is very difficult with characters like Trump and, and Boris well, Johnson. Can you talk a bit about that? Because, yeah. you know, the way that you do him on Dead Ringers, where he's got kind of split personality, I think it's quite an interesting choice, rather than the Alec Baldwin kind of yes. straight... Yeah. Um, what, Trump? That life thing, yeah. Well, Trump... Um, Trump hasn't got so much the split personality. It's, it's Boris Johnson. Sorry, Boris Johnson. Yeah, Boris Sorry. Johnson. Yeah. Um, isn't it interesting that I confused the two? I know. Yeah. That's <laughs> weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, with Boris Johnson. Um, sorry. Because Boris Johnson is just yeah, Boris contrasting Johnson. the Prime Minister with the way that Trump is portrayed as a sort of single character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean Trump, I think, is like... Uh, yeah, he's he's sort of just on a, on a single kind of line, isn't he? There's no... There's no oh, sorry. There's no... Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> But yeah, on Dead Ringers, we do a thing where we have Boris kind of trying to be sort of articulate and sensible, and then, you know, no, 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 and then there's a ha ha, and bad Boris comes in and starts going, you know, knickers and potty and ha ha ha, you know, and takes over. It's the, the real, it's like the sort of, um, the man with two, the man with two brains kind of thing. We did a sort of film type parody. But I think America's interesting because there's so much more satire in America. Yes. I mean, there's all that late night stuff, mm-hmm. the Colbert and, um, But they have to be, um, they, they'll become more like journalists in that they've got a huge team of researchers and they're saying okay let's not do jokes about Trump let's just show you what Trump said and then what he did and then what he said and then what someone else said about him and and, and that in itself even though it's a succession of facts is is funny that's where they're getting so they have to be a bit more kind of uh, investigative I think but I think it's it's interesting that we we don't I mean 
television companies don't seem to want to do that, as far as I can tell. They, don't, they seem very afraid of it because, you know, there is the potential to offend and the potential, mm-hmm. you know... I mean, the BBC, I think, is quite sort of, um, you know, on tippy-toes because they're scared of offending anybody because they, you know, because the licence fee and everything. And, um, and, you know, commercial television because of the advertisers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think television companies are quite afraid of satire, but they seem to... I suppose it's because they're... They're sort of individual companies, is it, in America, that they're less Well, of that? I don't I know. I think it's just a bigger country and has a bigger... You know, so something here that would be cult niche viewing mm. still gets enough viewers to justify it in terms of the advertising they, right. they, they get. So they can, in a strange way, take bigger risks, I think. It's harrowing to hear you say that people can't be sent up because they're worried about being controlled by the government. It's terrifying that the idea that you can't, you know, make a wanker sign at Boris Johnson because it will stop the BBC licence fee. You know that. Yeah, but that, I, that, I don't think it's. But that is literally what's happening. Yeah, that's, no, no, that's, no, that's, I'm that's just the terrifying. You know. I'm just terrified by yeah. that fact. I mean, the one thing I'll observe: like, there was a reunion for the 50th anniversary of um, that was the week that was, mm. and. Um, People talked about how, at the time, I mean, there was pressure applied in different ways, but on the whole, um, executives and producers trusted and backed up their um, their comedy writers and performers, and that Mm -hmm. has changed, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. I think. Well, when we were doing Dead Ringers on the telly, so we were sort of more exposed in a way. You're kind of, you know, you are a bit Mm -hmm. a bit more sort of cosy and hidden away, or or certainly you were uh, on the radio. But on telly, you know, you were more exposed, and we had an executive producer who was very bright man. Um, who was very anarchic, a guy called John Plowman, who exec produces all sorts of programmes like um, Ab Fab and Inside Number Nine. Um, and he exec produced Dead Ringers. And he would just go and say, well, of course you can say that. You know, mm. don't be daft. It's like, you know, it, 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 that, that's, that's the whole point. And, uh, and he, he wasn't a job's worth, you know. He wasn't just the... He, he just... He really fought your corner. And I think that there are now fewer people like that uh, in, you know... I think there is also this thing of um, impartiality, you know, in public service broadcasting, which is our main... Mm. main don't roll your eyes like oh, that. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't, uh, shoot, you know, don't roll your eyes at the messenger. You know? Impartiality <laughs> has gone so far that when yeah. you go on to talk about, like, you know, a, a, a nasty rape case, they have to find somebody to go up against you. So essentially I'm like, oh, great, you're going to find someone who's pro-rape. Pro-rape, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Knock and, yourselves out. Yeah, I'll take yeah. on the pro-rape person on the radio. False equivalence, I think. It's the false equivalence thing. Yeah. And, and, and that means you get... I mean, what you can get in America, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but you do get voices. You do get programmes that have their own voice and have their own opinion. Um, you know, Real Time with Bill Maher is very much a kind of pro-Democrat programme. However, you will get Rush Limbaugh. You know, they, it, it, it's, 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 uh, it's not something we, we're used to here. The most... The most disruptive kind of controversial we've got is Piers Morgan in the morning. Morning, that's that's about it. Um, You're rolling your eyes now. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have that. Yeah, it's a pained moment for me. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. Can I ask a bit about (laughs) development of characters, Jan? Mm -hmm. Because you did come on front row to talk about. Theresa May when she'd just become Prime Minister. And you were obviously feeling your way around how to do her. And it was amazing how kind of confident and how she sort of became a character 
in a different dimension. Well, I mean, and talk, talk me a bit through how you do people like well, that. Well, with Theresa May, when, when I... Um, I mean, when she was Home Secretary, I couldn't work out how to do it because she never appeared when she was Home Secretary. Um, and, um, and, then, and then when she sort of came out on the steps of Downing Street and made that speech about, you know, if you're born poor, um, you know, you will um, die up to four years earlier than other people and all that. And, and I just, you know, all that. And, and, um, and I suddenly noticed this, that she was sort of held in tension the whole time. And, and I mean, the terrible thing about... Um, about Theresa May was that she just got tenser and tenser as time went on until her shoulders were kind of completely up by her ears and you know she um she had that you know that 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 tense walk where she walks like she's carrying a drip trolley you know it's sort of... <laughs> and she and and I just you know as as time went on I mean I was like you know she she sort of you know, it was a great it was a great thing for me to do, and it was a great character, and 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 you know, because things didn't work out so well, that was kind of you know good as well in terms of satire. But but actually, it became rather disturbing to watch her, and um, and and by the end, you know, we were doing. I remember doing this sketch where we were sort of going. Um, she was going around saying uh, what I'm hearing. Well, I'm, I, I've been to Birmingham and, and what I'm hearing is... Uh, and, you know, we had her sort of going to... Well, here I am at the Arctic Circle and what I'm hearing from the penguins <laughs> is... Uh, uh, and it was, it was just sort of pathetic. And, and so I actually... People sort of said, oh, you must be terribly upset to have lost, you know, your Theresa May character. And I was going, no, no! Let her go and have a rest, Although, have a cup of tea. You of know? course, there was that moment when she came on to Dancing Queen at the Tory party conference, which seemed oh. to fit exactly well it's really interesting the audience reaction what I'm hearing um, because I, I actually found it quite moving when she did that I did honestly because I kind of thought yeah yeah fuck it Teresa you know give it to them you know and she sort of like, it was like she was taking the piss out of herself and there's something about her her face that never, you know, you sort of if, can't do comedy when you look that tense. Not so much the dancing, but if you had had to satirise the year before's conference speech where she lost her voice, oh yes. was somebody came on yeah. and Gave the, her the thing fell down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had to go into the hall and it was like, you know, when you, they have the announcer on that, I had to get one, somebody in my living room to tell me what was happening because I could not no, bear no, to watch it. And no. I disliked this woman intently and liked watching her fail. And I found it really, really, really difficult to watch. But would you have ever written that, though? People would have gone, that is ludicrous. That yeah. could never yeah, happen. They've, they've lost it, it now. They've jumped the shark. Theresa May's jumped the shark. She has. Is there not an element also in there about do you treat male and female public figures slightly differently? And are there, even if they're unspoken rules? Because... I know what you mean. I think well, I did, I did have to call out sometimes the scripts for Theresa May. I would sort of say, well, that's actually not her. That's, that's misogyny. I mean, because she was, you know, there was a lot of misogyny. The way she was treated in Europe, you know, you could see them all kind of going like that. And, and then it was so galling to see Boris Johnson there and all sort of going, yeah, yeah. you know, good on you, mate. And We've all got like, a what chap. suddenly yes. happened? Yeah. Um, Is there something, you, an example in the script that you felt, no, we're not going to do that? Yeah, 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 sometimes, yeah. Can you give an example? Yes, I have to be the, you know, the misogyny police. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give an example from Newswatch, which is not deliberately satire. But, you know, we get viewers' comments in. And 
it's really interesting. We get certain male viewers saying, those two female presenters, they were gossiping like fishwives. <laughs> the phrase, <laughs> like fishwives. Yeah. And I've had this conversation with my producer to say, we're not putting phrases like that on air. No. You know, it's I'm, really interesting. I, no, well, yes, because it, it, you know, things like that, they seep in, don't they? And you, know, you, you do have to sort of, uh, yeah, you have to be very alert. Yeah, to no them. one's ever described Boris Johnson as being feisty. No. Or a fish People wife, say that yeah. about me all Or bubbly. Yes. Yeah, or bubbly. Vivacious. Yeah. Yes. Vivacious yes. Boris Johnson. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I like about Boris Johnson? He's sassy. Yeah. <laughs> so much sass. <laughs> he really gives them what for, Boris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a bit about the environment in which satire is potentially taking place. You said sometimes people do it on social media without necessarily realising. We certainly... There is a sense that the wrong thing or a supposed joke taken the wrong way can very quickly escalate. Mm. And I wonder what all your views are about that sort of cultural sense of offence-taking seems to have very quick consequences. There's two things. I mean, one is, I think, you know, over the decades... um, certain attitudes have changed. So there are certain jokes that, you know, made 30 years ago that you wouldn't dream of making now. But I think that's separate from being so afraid of offending anyone that you sort of self-censor. Um, it's, it's like you said earlier, I, I, I ask myself, what is wrong with being offended? You know, if you have a set of beliefs, whether the religious beliefs or political beliefs or, or whatever, they should be able to withstand some kind of challenge. And if they, can't, if they can't stand a joke, then I put it to you that those beliefs haven't really been strongly thought through. Well, really. I, used, I used to get that sometimes from feminists, you know, saying, why are you taking the piss out of all these women? You go, well, because I don't do men. Um, yeah. But, you yes. know, <laughs> uh, why are you taking the piss out of all these women? Well, you know, if, if women can't take a joke about them and you're going to say, OK, we won't do any jokes about women because, you know, it, it might offend them and it's not fair. Well, women have got to get, have the confidence. If you're going to be out in the public eye, you've mm. got to have the confidence to have the piss taken out of you. And that goes for anybody else as well. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I said, you know, always be suspicious of the person who can't take a joke because they're usually the ones that end up... Um, causing the most destruction, really. I mean, most dictators do not like comedians. They don't like, they don't like jokes. Because yeah, jokes yeah, yeah. are... You can't control laughter. Laughter is spontaneous. They don't like that. They don't like anything that's spontaneous. Uh, Jess, where are you on the whole issue about offence and social Yeah, I media? think that if you... Are, are, I mean, I don't think that you shouldn't take the piss out of women. I don't think that, that you shouldn't take the piss out of people for their political views. Or I think that we're in a sort of worrying time where... The offence taken is largely, it's, it, it's partially what you've said about maybe you haven't thought through your opinion, but the offence taken is a cover for something else, actually. It's like mm. a proxy war um, where somebody will hate you for some, some other thing, misdemeanour, that you have, um, you have committed. And then if you make a gag at somebody's expense, they will assume bad faith. There is so much bad faith in the world that you cannot... It feels, I'm not saying, like, I'm not Alf Garnet. I don't want to go around being like a wanker all the time and get away with it. I am saying that, personally for me, people taking the piss out of me, I actually find it quite flattering. I Most don't mind will. being sent up. 
Um, I think it's uh, my dad, when I, when I was on Dead Ringers, my dad rang me immediately. <laughs> and was, I, I was, he listens yeah, to it religiously. Um, um, but when, and when people write awful things about me, even in the newspapers, when it's not even funny, I ju- you, honestly, I think that if we can't take it as public figures... You shouldn't be out there. It's, and can, it can is just... different if you are fa- if you are famous for something else. Actually, well, can I, I can I raise a slightly just slightly different issue just to take it on a bit, which is there is this accusation made sometimes about not punching down. Yeah. So the culture of um, sort of French satire, you know, Charlie Hebdo magazine was pretty harsh and it's it's you know quite extreme. But there was an accusation made that you know satirising Muslims who were quite a, a demonised group anyway never in any way trying to excuse a terrorist, you know, murderous attack. Um, there was something about that magazine and its misogyny and its racism, mm. which perhaps wasn't fair. And mm. I, I don't mm. know what your views But what are. do you... I mean, yes, but the solution isn't to go in and shoot them. Yeah, but, but, the, but know, also there should have been an element of self-censorship you know, I, separate to whether an attack course, ever took place. I mean, place. I'm not arguing that, that, that... I mean, I actually went online and looked at the cartoons to see what the... And they weren't very good, you know, mm-hmm. apart from anything else. And I do think if you also are... If you are going to... to no, also another reason to kill them. But <laughs> if you are... If you are not taking on... If, no, if you are taking on... A, agreed on that. If you are taking on a sensitive subject, I think there is a responsibility to at least do it well, you know, to, to think through yeah. what the point is you're trying to make and is this the best way of making it? Does that joke work? Does, is it very clear what the target is? Could someone get misunderstand it, or you know, have you have you, you? I think you have to put extra work into it if you are going mm. to look at a subject that's a bit more sensitive. I mean, I spent uh, a couple of years ago I made, made this film, The Death of Stalin, and it was a comedy, but it was about it was about it was pretty dark. It was, it was dark. <laughs> now, and and what we did was we decided that we would show the the gulags and the shootings and so on. We would show them uh, and um, without any kind of commentary on them, and all the comedy would be coming from inside the Kremlin. But the, the decisions these people in the Kremlin make, we would see enacted out for real, and that was the approach. But researching that, people who, who grew up under Stalin at the time would say, "Look, we had jokes about Stalin." We, we, and you could be shot if you told these jokes. Yeah, tell um, me a bit about that. But, but it, it was like they it. were saying, look, they could take my family away, they could take my job away, they could lock me up, but if I can still make a joke about you, you haven't taken yeah. my spirit away. You know, that was the last weapon, really. That's so kind of brilliant, isn't it? I think we um, are lucky that we live at the moment in a society where if we make a joke about someone, we are not going to be shot. You know, but uh, I have to say, I don't always feel like that. Right. Personally, I don't feel that sometimes when we're not so much joking, although Mm -hmm. I like a joke, um, Mm -hmm. I do, you know, sometimes I find myself going, I shouldn't say this because I might get killed. And that is a genuine reality, I think, that people in certainly political public life face. Um, I'm not going to say too much more about it because my son is on the front row. <laughs> but I, I was actually wondering, uh, and this is slightly sort of off the point of satire, but I was slightly wondering in the point of, you know, the way women are portrayed uh, satirically, but also the, 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 what you talk about, about being, being a, a, a female public figure, a female politician, do they get more of all that, all the threats and yes. the... 
much, much, much mm. more um, than men. And actually, I think that there is an element of it that is about comedy as well, is that the, the abuse that can be crafted towards men is much, much easier to make funny and light. Mm. And so it's much less like a, a knife. Uh, whereas with women, it immediately goes to sexual violence. It immediately goes to the physicality of the way mm. you look. Um, it immediately goes to, to sex, mm. uh, both yeah, your that, sex yeah. and sex with you. Mm. Um, that isn't funny. Now, if somebody genuinely... I often put this back to trolls on the internet and say, just be a bit more original. Um, yeah. <laughs> because I like a laugh. Um, that if somebody has genuinely crafted an amazing cuss on the internet at me, I, I take my hat off to that. But it is the vast majority of it is hasn't been thought through. It is, oh, I wouldn't even rape this bitch. Um, and that... Actually, I think that if there was an element of humour and thought into it, and it's much easier to do that with Boris Johnson, it's much easier to do that with Chris Grayling, it's mm, much yeah. easier. We don't, our, our head doesn't immediately go to violence because we don't use violence in society actually to control men in the way that we use it to control women. Can I just point out those kinds of comments? I mean, the president of Brazil has basically joked... About that way about uh, women. Um, I was watching the film Bombshell recently, where you know Trump made that comment about was it um, Megyn Kelly, the Prox presenter, about bleeding from everywhere. Oh, yes, it yes. was really interesting the way that he uses the language of jokes yes. to actually say, "Oh, I was just joking about Ukraine." Yes. And they'll say that afterwards. In, oh, he was just yes. joking. Yes, but it, well, it was a terribly written, poorly performed, <laughs> ill-thought-through joke. Which is another reason why he should be the leader. But where of the does free that world, leave you know? satire? That we are in that world where presidents can well, joke. That, that is the, the that thing. Way. They've become their own entertainers. They are. Donald Trump sees himself as essentially a salesperson, an entertainer. He's all about getting a re, a re, an immediate reaction, um, getting a, a kind of. He's all about numbers. You know how many people turned up in my inauguration, the ratings for my State of the Union. It's it, it's all about that. So I sort of leave that kind of self-basting satire that he does about himself to himself which is why I think the responsibility then falls on other people to do a bit more work and a bit more digging around in terms of the jokes analyzing what he's doing Jan well I I was just thinking as you were saying that I mean I'm almost sort of at at a point with Donald Trump where I think he must be unwell Oh, clearly, yes. I mean, he... he, Because if you see um, footage of him sort of, you know, from um, earlier times, he's quite articulate. You might not like what he's saying, Mm. but he's quite articulate and Mm. he's talking at a sort of, you know, a sort of steady Mm. pace. Whereas now, you know, he has thing, you know. And he... Mm. It's like, what are you on? And, um, well, actually, some comedian's done a whole thing about actually what he is on. Um, Right. Uh, but anyway, I better not say yeah, any more yeah. about that. But but uh... but he start he starts five sentences at once. So he'll say, you know, the other day, and by the way, yeah, the, yeah, Nancy yeah. Pelosi, she, and I've got to say, yeah, the yeah. Uh, the chairs in that place were beautiful, beautiful, so beautiful chairs, very beautiful, so chairs. beautiful. I know Melania, well. yeah. uh, anyway, <laughs> Iraq, you know, and he's like, yeah, his verbal desktop has all these kind of. <laughs> apps all over the place and and that i think that's that worries me that's it is very worrying but i mean we can't sort of 
yeah, I think you're right. I think the guys, that, the, the sort of the satirists that are going more for the sort of the serious side of things, the taking it apart, the saying this is what he says, but this is mm. what actually ha- this is what actually happens. So it's all sort of it's kind of data based satire yes. kind of thing, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, you know, good on them. But I mean, I I do. I do think it's important to be able to, to laugh about it. I do think the release is important as a, as a society. You know, I think it's, it's important to, to be able to have a laugh about things. And actually, one of the things that does worry me about, about satire in this country, certainly, is that actually not that many people have that release because, you know, it's, it's fairly niche still. You know, it's Radio 4 or it's, you know, it's BBC 2 or it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's not reaching a, a wide audience. You know, it's not, you know, the, I mean, I think the, sometimes the kids do find it because I actually found, like, with the Theresa May uh, thing, it went completely viral because it went, I think it went on a young labour site or something and then a young something. It was, it was, it was picked up by young people. And when I went to Edinburgh and said uh, to my woman that was giving out the flyers, um, just go up to, um, you know, middle-aged people because, you know, there's no, point go- there's no point going to any of the young people that you meet in the street, you know, that, that they won't know who I am. And, and she's going, oh, no, 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 I've been talking about it to lots of, lots of my friends and, you know, they've seen the thing on YouTube. And I was thinking, oh, well, wow, that's interesting. Because I think it is a problem that, that you know, that, that it does need to go to a wider audience because you need, to, you know, it, it would be great if, I, but it is, and it is perpetrated very often by white middle class people. I mean, you know, private, you know, right from TW3 to Private Eye now to, you know, a, a good deal of the people writing programs like Dead I Ringers and News Jack. Yes. that kids... Uh, and I can only speak for my own children. Mm. Uh, they watch a huge amount of American satire yes. on uh, online. Both mm. and, yes. and my son Danny, who is eleven, who is not here, he watched this morning the death of Stalin. He's, he he, <laughs> he loves it. His favourite joke in it is the no problem joke. Chris. There's no, no <laughs> problem. Uh, he loves it. He says it to me all the time. But he also mm. once told me that I should get ready because uh, he was like, "Are you not ready? You're not ready. Are you not oven ready?" So the amount of propaganda. <laughs> that my children see online is terrifying but they watch a huge amount of what's the chap who's from Birmingham originally what, Jasper um, Carriage? No. <laughs> there's an American bloke and he's from Birmingham originally what's his name he was on John Oliver oh John Oliver oh yeah he's great absolutely shed loads yes absolutely yes but then he's he's archetypally what I was talking about he has a huge team of researchers and He puts, and, and he's committed, you know, he's absolutely mm. passionate about, you know, getting to the, underneath the skin of each topic. Fantastic. Right, we're going to take some questions. Yes, go ahead. Good evening. Oh. First oh, question. Hello. With the demise of print media, do you think that the nature of satire has changed? So, for instance, having to be in Twitter in shorter formats or it being much easier to do things in AV formats? Do you think the nature of satire has changed? I really like you talking about the the, the uh, decline of print yes. journalism, and I think it just it then emerges through other outlets. And you talk about the younger generation; a lot of their conversation and their political conversation, or their comedy conversations, happening online and, and via social media during the election when the Conservative Party changed its name for a day to Fact Check UK, <laughs> which I have to say is not a million miles away from the Ministry of Truth. Yes. Um, what was really funny was instantly, people like Charlie Brooker and various others, including myself, we changed our names to Fact Check, Check UK, UK as well, because yeah. you could just... They, what they didn't realise, you could just copy 
their photos that they'd put up. And so suddenly it was like, I am Spartacus. Suddenly it was like <laughs> 100,000 fact checks UK, you know. And, and, and then, you, so you could then put anything you like underneath it because it was endorsed by Fact Check UK. So, but that has, I mean, it's interesting because it yeah. has an impact as well. Because, yes. of course, it prompted well, I love the government that. to change I think, back. And I think that's where it's in these unexpected, you know, if, if, if good satire is to be disruptive, then it will come from these unexpected, much more spontaneous, yeah. instant responses, but creative responses. Right, there's one up. Um, we've talked a bit about the John Oliver show, and it's great and clearly very well-researched. But, but why do you think we don't have something similar in the UK? Is it that no one's pitching it? Is it that no one's commissioning it? Why well, isn't it here? I think timidity, I, you know, is... is and also... Um, and actually cost sometimes. Cost, because, yes, you know, those are expensive script, shows. Script writers, good script writers, um, you know, don't come cheap, so they'd rather have, you know, talking heads, mm. um, uh, which, you know, you, you can... Yeah, it, it's an expensive thing to do. And the, John the, Oliver, the writer's room is a very American phenomenon. It's a very American thing, yeah. but John Oliver's show is on HBO on a Sunday night, and it gets about 0.9% of the, that nightly viewing. But that, in America, is big enough, plus the repeats and the online, online. and the, the mm-hmm. life online uh, and the consolidated figures over the years. You know, that, that's more than enough to, in terms of... Um, subscriptions and you know so it pays for it but we don't have that bigger country we don't have that enormous population does the mash report come closer i think that's possibly the mash report oh yeah yeah i mean the the mash report is you know it is yes the mash report is is good i mean i think that the cost thing is the Mm. issue because the mash report is so up to the minute and i know because i was with some of them once when something had changed in parliament and they were like stop changing shit i know know. we're trying to write this stuff down and it's like and it was very over the brexit negotiations it was so incredibly impossible because it just who knew what was going to happen from one minute to the next um and it it takes huge numbers of people writing literally seconds because mm. it has to be kept literally up to date. Um, now that it may well, it will potentially be much easier in an era where Boris Johnson has a majority of eighty, um, and Parliament will be in you know the sort of drama of having votes where the chair has to decide which way the vote's going to go is gone. Um, it will potentially become much easier, but it's... It... Well, uh, of course, it will be shutting down the BBC, so... Yeah, also the so public the... sector broadcasting the... thing is, is part of the reason why as well, because both on Channel 4 and BBC, yeah. where, the, where this would exist, unless, you know, Channel 5 or Dave is going to uh, invest yeah. heavily in it. Uh, but actually, but... in terms of keeping up to the minute, what topical programmes generally do is they have a sort of bank of sketches that aren't topical where you know our reporter goes and sees what you know young single mothers are doing or something you know and um uh, and so that so they can sort of like you know there's these yeah. like building blocks in the program that sort of and then and then you've got the news desk items that are sort of absolutely right up to them and it, that make the whole program feel topical so um have you had my back all night i'm so sorry um uh uh um, I suppose have I got news for you as well? Yes. Is, but that's just because it's just a commentary on what has yes. happened throughout the week yes, is, yes. is, is t- easier. I've got one down the front. I've got number three. Have you got someone near you? 
With the advent of uh, social media and um, the sharing of memes and all those sorts of things, do you think that the um, satire um, sort of uh, distribution is going to go back to the kind of pamphleteering days and those sorts of things rather than the um, sort of produced like uh, televisual? Um, well, sort of I, as I say, I like the things that just creep out, you know, and, and um, it, it's, it's the equivalent of saying, oh, have you seen this? You know, just yes, sending a link people don't actually have to make a whole program anymore, like Michael Spicer. Is it Michael Spicer? I've got the name right. You know, doing the things where he's in the room next door. Oh, yes. And, uh, yes, 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 yes. He, so he's, like, trying to... He, he puts out these films called The Room Next Door where he's, he's right. like, being the, 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 the voice in the ear um, of, of the politician. And he's done them with their... Most recently, Pretty Patel, I think, going, you know... Yes. No, no don't, don't say counter-terrorism. And she goes, well, we have to stop counter-terrorism. We really do. And, um, you know, doing that thing of agreeing with herself all the time. How does she not fall over more often? To say it once is a misspeak. To say it nineteen times or whatever. I mean, and she just no, no, don't say it again. No, no, don't say it again. And and she goes, so what is with counter terrorism? And he does Have you done much Preeti Patel? Pardon? Have you done much Preeti Patel? I have done Preeti Patel because Preeti Patel is doing that thing with time, where she is saying all the words that are ending in in without the girl on the end. Because she is trying to be more relatable, she really is, and she is, yeah, she is agreeing with herself all the time. And she said, "What you're going to do, which is right and correct, um, you know?" She sort of like tells you that it's right. After, you know, I mean, she's she's absolutely extraordinary. I've never, I mean, always that smile as well, some yeah, smile yeah. on her face. As yeah. But there was that great moment, wasn't it, when Andrew Marr accused her of smirking? Yes. And she wasn't smirking. That is just, that her, is just face. her face. That is just her face. <laughs> that is just her face. I, I, when you say I do, Pretty Patel, uh, because in the voting lobbies in the House of Commons, it's done by your. We have the same uh, surname, beginning letter. So if she's P, I'm P. And so often when I'm voting like in school. the lobby in the opposite side, I pretend to be Pretty Patel to try and get her to vote in the Labour lobby. So I say my name as I go through. I say Pretty Patel. And they have never once marked her down as voting in the wrong lobby yet. But one day... (laughs) I picked Pretty Patel because I knew that no one could ever mistake me for Pretty Patel. So So you're saying uh, politics is not the childish (laughs) set of games that uh, is so often portrayed in the media. Well, one uh... day... (laughs) Right, number six. Thank you. Uh, Hi, good evening. Uh, What young satirists do you rate if any, uh, what? and what advice would you give to them? Uh, I mean, my advice is just always keep going. You know, the, there is really no, you know, we grew up in a, a kind of environment where you had to go into London and sit in a writing room and, mm. and write some stuff and hope it might get used. Now uh, you, can, you can make your own stuff. It, that's, that's the beauty of, of how the technology and social media work. You can make stuff, and I think you just get better the more you make, but you don't have to wait now to be asked to make it. And, you know, the, the best new satirists are the ones that haven't appeared yet. You know, I, I like the, when they just pop up and you're genuinely surprised by... by I remember when Peter Sirovinovich, the first two years of Trump's administration, Peter Sirovinovich, who's an impressionist as well as an amazing actor, did this thing called Sassy Trump, which was just taking speeches by Donald Trump unedited but replacing them with a kind of sort of like a Liberace voice because his hand gestures are so 
slightly, yeah. you know, like that. And it's such a wonderful, you know, and it just so transformed. But it then made you listen actually to what he was saying. And, it, and you just thought, this is terrible. This is yeah, like yeah. horrific, you know. And it's, I, but you, no one could have sat down in a meeting and said, why don't we do this? It's just one of those things someone mucking around came up with and it just worked beautifully. Jane Godley does those amazing voiceovers. Yeah. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, I love those. Yeah. yeah, 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 they're very funny. I mean, Bill Dare, who produces Dead Ringers, he, he actually teaches a comedy writing course, and he does, he does bring up new young writers, and there are now actually quite a number of young women writing on Dead Ringers, which, you know, there never used to be. It used to be very much a sort of... I mean, I always call topical comedy the last bastion of male chauvinism. I mean, it, did, it did seem like there were, you know, it, it was all um, white middle-class men, but it, it, that is changing. Um, which is good. Do you yeah. think that the Jane Godley example, she's done me a couple of times, and I, again, I absolutely love uh, having a really like broad Scottish accent um, <laughs> in it. Um, I, I genuinely found it charming. Um, but her, that example of her, because she's, she's quite a big supporter of the Scottish Nationalist Party, um, and I wonder if, and, and obviously you've said that you're a member of the Labour Party and comedy is largely the bastion of the left, usually. Um, well, it's the bastion of against the establishment, I suppose, which the left holds. I wonder if, in the Jane Godley example, who I think is really, really funny... If you're so obviously going to only send up your opponents, not those on your own side, is that satire anymore? Is it? Well, it... well it's polemic, I suppose, isn't it? It's it, because it, it has an agenda. I mean, I, I am a member of the Labour Party, but I do send up people in the oh, Labour no, Party. I was, yeah, uh, I mean, but, I'm a member of the Labour Party, yeah. and I send up members of you the say, Labour Party, <laughs> including yourself. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, I'm not a member of any party, but I. I the only time I get vitriol is when I make a joke on Twitter about Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And it does worry me that, going back to what we were saying earlier, about if we're just saying we can joke about the others but not about ourselves, mm-hmm. we cannot take a joke. Then, you know, the great thing about comedy is that it sort of unites us. You know, if, if you can make everyone laugh, then, then there's some kind of connection going on. But if you're starting to say, no, you can laugh, but I don't want any of you laughing... Um, then, that's what I mean about the bad faith. So if, yeah. you make a, if I make a joke about like one of my mates so, uh, who would be considered to be from my wing of the Labour Party and I could take the piss out of them online, which I do all the time, like in friendly humour, whereas if you were to do that, to, so it's considered in such bad faith that you're a baddie and that if you take the piss out of Jeremy Corbyn, that's because you hate the NHS. Oh. I mean, literally, like... I, I, is... I got, so you'd rather children died. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this was me having a go at anti-Semitism. So, oh, right, yeah, no, no, I'd much prefer anti-Semitism than children die. Of course, of course. We're all agreed on that. We're all, you know, come on, there's no two questions about this. Anytime. Anti-Semitism first, obviously. <laughs> Perfect choice, yeah. What? You know... Right. Well, I think this one down the very front. How much of the satire that you produce is to make change or to be an activist? And if it is, do you change some of it to make more change? I personally don't 
do don't, don't do satire to bring about change because I don't I don't I don't think satire is ever going to bring down the government. But like I said earlier, I think it can maybe change people's minds and make people see things a bit differently. Um, I mean, the, the, on spitting image, you know, they they used to there was the, that, that famous incident of when um, uh, David Owen and David Steele within the um, uh, the Liberal Democrat Alliance uh, thing, and, and uh, they it so happened that they didn't have a proper-sized David Steele puppet. So they got the prototype David Steele pocket, uh, puppet and put it in the pocket of the David Owen. Uh, and it, it sort of worked so well as a, as a, as a, a little David, David Steele puppet and then David Owen being very sort of, you know, the big smoothie. Um, and in fact, David Steele was, you know, had more MPs and was a more powerful man, but he always reckoned that his career was, mm. you know, ruined by the fact mm. that he was portrayed as a tiny little thing uh, on spitting image, which, you know... People sort of say, actually, you know, he wasn't. But, but, but I mean, that, that was one of the things where it did sort of... But, the, you know, they had satire in, you know, the Weimar Republic and it didn't, you know, d- you know despite Charlie Chaplin and everything, you know, it didn't, didn't stop Hitler. So I don't, I don't think satire is, you know, I think... So I think to say, well, satire can't change anything. Look at how ridiculous everything is. So, we, so you know, there's no point. I think that, you know... There's lots of point in it without it needing to change, mm. uh, needing to change the government. I mean, however much you might hope for that, um, I don't think satire is going to do it. But yeah, maybe it'll make people see things a different way okay. and have a laugh. Do you want to move? Jester, do you want to? I would just say that I, I agree with that about satire, but I use comedy to try and bring down the government all the time. <laughs> um, because actually the quickest way to get a room of people to trust you, whether they agree with your politics or not, is to make them laugh. Mm. Yeah, but and I think it works con- in your situation. It works in my situation. But, but the, not, the, as a, not as a commentator. I think it works as a perpetrator, but not a commentator. But, uh, yeah, yes. the, the reality of it is, though, is that you will always be considered not to be serious, even though the language largely of politics in ordinary people's homes, certainly in working-class people's homes, is humour. And we have a different view of it uh, in Westminster. And so that you can absolutely use humour to bring down people like Boris Johnson. And what worries me, actually, about our current approach as the Labour Party is that we have lost any sense of puncturing with humour and only ever try and just be holier than thou and I think yeah. that it, mm. the public can't see it, whether they can hear a joke. Mm. Final right. thoughts it's, it's from each media. It's not just um, fake media, but the, the fact that there is, you know, we all have our own media now, so you do get, like, Boris Johnson telling ministers not to go on the Today programme. He's no longer going to take interviews, as many interviews as normal, as Prime Minister normally would, because they've got their own channel now. They've got the Boris Johnson Facebook page, and, and for him... He's using that as justification for how he's actually... He's speaking directly to the people without the uh, annoying interference of uh, a respected journalist asking him a, a succession of well-researched questions. Um, it's, it, and that, that is another worrying development as well. Yeah. What Jan. shampoo do you wear? Do you use was the question that, question? that he and yeah. you select your own question. So he selected what shampoo do you use? And he didn't even know the answer. I mean, pick one you know the answer to. He said it's in a blue bottle or something. It's just like, you know what? He should have said Tresemme. That would have been really funny. Jan, I'm gonna give the final word to you. Do you wanna 
Well, I've got completely distracted, actually, by what... By what oh, I know what I was going to say. Yes, I mean, I think... I, I do think now we are at a point where is it, it is as important to be satirising the way that news is disseminated as opposed to just the news itself. Because there's so much fake news. There's so much people saying things that just blatantly aren't. Or then saying one thing and the next week saying another. Or, you know, at, like Amanda says, have, having this direct access to people. So I think we really, you know, if, if, uh, we really have to keep a close eye on, on, on the way it's being pre- on the way things are being presented to us and not just the things themselves. Thank you. I'd like to thank all the speakers, thank you, the audience, Intelligence Squared as well. I wonder what kind of conversation we'll be having in five years from now about the age we're in and what's happening. How about to how long are you in for? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going away forever. <laughs> thank you all very much. Good night. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.